Well, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew, and uh, we're getting to the climax of it all, coming up to Easter a couple of weeks. We're currently in Matthew 23, which is the chapter that we're in today. Uh, About a week ago, we had something happen to one of our appliances at home. We had a, a dishwasher at home, and I was sitting on the couch, and I could hear it get it to the end of the cycle when it's pumping all the water out of the dishwasher. There was this horrible grinding sound that went on and crashing sound or whatever, and then the motor seemed to stop. And so when I opened it up to find out what was going on, there was water filling the bottom of the, uh, the, the dishwasher. It wasn't draining away. The pump to drain the water had, uh, was broken. So, you know, we had plenty to do, so we closed the, the door, pulled the, dishwash, dishing, uh, the, the washing out, and got on with life. Um, <clears throat> well, some, things like that have a habit of catching up with you after a while. Those of you, some of you are laughing because you know what's coming. And uh, so the day later or whatever, you walk in the house and it's, hmm, I, I can smell something a little funny. And you're trying to chase down where it is. And then you remember about the dishwasher, you open up the door, suddenly the whole house is filled with the fragrance of, of stale water and rotten stuff that didn't get flushed away. And it's quite a unique smell. And if you leave it long enough, it will fill the entire house and drive you out. Your house will be left to you desolate because there will be nowhere else for you to go. You will not be able to stand staying in the, in the home. Uh, and so there comes a point where you just have to act. Whatever you have to do, you have to do it, uh, which we did. But this chapter is, like, um, is a little bit like that. Uh, there's a couple of things happening here where people have kind of got to the point where they're saying, okay, that's enough already. There's enough stink in the house. There's enough stuff that's gunk that's not been flushed away. It's time to do something. And the, the main group that people have been looking at are the, are the Pharisees and the leaders. And they've had enough with Jesus. They've had enough with his preaching, enough with his healing, enough with saying the things that he's been saying. He's turned their temple upside down. He's said some things which seem just crazy to them. And they want Jesus out of the system. They want to flush him out of the system. This has got too much from them. It's become unbearable for them. And they're going to deal with it, which they're going to do by provoking him to get killed. But Matthew 23 is actually not about the Pharisees saying how much they've had enough of all of this. It's actually about Jesus talking about them. Jesus flips the whole thing on its head and he says, actually, the real problem here is not me, which it wasn't. The problem wasn't Jesus. The real problem was the Pharisees and the leaders and their attitudes and their hearts. And that was what was really making a bad smell in the area. And if it wasn't dealt with, if something didn't happen, it was going to become a bad scene for everybody. And it was time to act. And so Jesus actually talks about what was wrong with the Pharisees in this chapter in 23. But there is an underlying message in this chapter, which we're going to get to at the end, which these religious leaders totally missed. And if we're not careful, we can miss it too. But by the Holy Spirit, we're not going to miss it this morning. He's going to help us to understand what is underneath this chapter, which is there is an incredible wonder that is like a carpet underneath everything else that Jesus says here. And so the sermon title for today is Seven Woes because Jesus goes about giving seven woes to the, uh, the Pharisees and the leaders. Seven woes and a wonder. And if you'll hang on, the wonder is worth the price of admission. But let's just start by reading some of these verses um, out of 
Matthew 23. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12 to start with, and then I'm going to reference some of the verses from the rest of the chapter as we go through. Verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. A phylactery was a little leather pouch that they used to put scriptures in it from the Torah, from the, the Old Testament Torah, and put it on their foreheads and in various places. And the bigger the phylacteries, it showed that you, you had more of the scripture in your mind and in your head. So they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Holy Spirit, you authored these words. You wrote them for us. And I pray you would open our eyes to see what you are wanting to show us and open our hearts to receive all that you want to share with us today and change us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we unpack this chapter, let's just ask a couple of questions. The first one is this, who is Jesus speaking to? And then the second question we want to answer is, how is he speaking to them? And I'm talking about the manner in which he spoke. So first of all, who is Jesus speaking to? The very next sentence after the passage we just read starts like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's who Jesus addresses for the rest of the chapter, the scribes and the Pharisees. Ken told us, if you were here, some of what a Pharisee was last, last week. They're the people who set the spiritual atmosphere. They're the people who interpreted with the scribes. They interpreted the law to the people and told them how they should live. And there were a lot of them. Uh, Josephus, the, uh, the historian at the time, or shortly after the time, said there was around 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at the time. That's a lot of Pharisees. Jesus wasn't just talking to a few people. He was talking to an entire group of people who were like the spiritually ruling uh, party of the nation. And he spoke to them. Which brings us to who Jesus wasn't speaking to. Because even though he was speaking to the spiritually ruling party, he wasn't speaking to the politically ruling party. The people who were politically ruling Israel at the time were the Romans who were known for their incredibly cruelty and the barbaric ways in which they oppressed people. But Jesus doesn't talk to them. In fact, you'd hard-pressed to see anything in Jesus' teaching about them or actually anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus is primarily focused right now on his people, the leadership of his people, the atmosphere of what's going on in his people, because he understands that if his people are living the way that they ought to be, then a lot of the other things will get taken care of, as they're being salt and light truly in the earth. 
So this passage is to the spiritual leaders. But it's also to the crowds and the disciples around Jesus. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. So he's clearly addressing the spiritual leadership, but he starts by saying to the disciples and the ordinary people, now I want you to listen to all this too, because I don't want you to be like them. So they're listening to all the woes that Jesus is speaking But Jesus is doing it in their hearing because he doesn't want them to end up like the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. So that's who Jesus is talking to. But what was the tone of his message? You'd be forgiven if you read this chapter for thinking that this is Jesus on a rant. And that's the way I've heard it preached. Severe faces, fingers wagging, fists even shaking sometimes. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites. You'd be forgiven for thinking, if you just read it, that that's the way that Jesus gave it. But you'd be wrong. The word woe in the Greek is not an angry word. It is the word of a broken heart. It is the word of a love That is crying out for people who are doing the opposite of what that love requires. Woe is the way that they spoke when they went to their funerals. And they would talk about woes, different woes in the funerals. Woe for this happening, woe for that happening. It was a brokenness. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He can see things moving in a certain direction. He can see the fact that in AD 70, at some point, whether he knew the date or exactly what was going to happen, but he could sense it in the heart of God that Titus, the Roman general, was going to walk through the gates of Jerusalem with his armies and he was going to burn the place to the ground and slaughter many, many people. It would be almost a genocide. And Jesus could see this coming. And he could see how the religious leaders are so out of touch with what God's doing. They're so not seeing what's happening that they're running down that path and they're taking all the people with them. And so he cries out, woe, woe to you. It's the brokenness of the heart of God. And he begins his woes by giving an instruction, which we have, sorry, an introduction, which we have just read. In it, he lays out the main charges against the Pharisees and the religious leaders, which he then unpacks in the seven woes. He says this about the Pharisees and the leaders. He says they want position, but they're not willing to practice what they preach. He said, don't be like them, because that is hypocrisy. If you remember a few weeks ago, when we first found that word hypocrisy in Matthew, we figured out what it was about. It's a, it's a word that's used to describe Greek actors on the stage. Sometimes they used masks, but they were professionals who were there to portray somebody else. And if they were really good, you'd be watching them and thinking, oh, that really is so-and-so. But it wasn't. It was just an act. And Jesus says this about the Pharisees and the scribes all the way through this chapter. You're hypocrites. It's like you're on a stage, you've got this mask up, you're putting on this really great exterior, but inside, that's not who you really are. And that's hypocrisy. Jesus says to to the people around him, you need to concentrate on the practice, not just on the position. 
In fact, don't even worry about the position, he says. The position is actually meaningless. Rabbi, teacher, father. Because you're all siblings. You're all brothers and sisters, equally valued and equally loved by God. You all share one father in heaven, in verse 9. And you all have one rabbi and instructor who's Jesus Christ. That's in verse 8 and verse 10. Jesus is not saying that we don't need earthly fathers and teachers or spiritual fathers and teachers. But what he's saying is, don't make a deal of the position. The position is not what matters. In fact, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if you really must have a position, take the lowest one. Take the lowest one. Then Jesus unpacks his opening statement with his seven woes. These read like charges that totally take the mask off the actors. He can see right through them, just like he can see right through you and me today. But he says they can't see it all. He says you're like blind guides. You're not, you're not seeing what's going on. You've lost sight of what is real and true. And the woes tell us in which ways they have lost sight. So I'm just going to go through them quickly this morning. I'm not going to go through all seven individually because some of them are very close in meaning to each other. So we're going to partner some of them together. But let's look at them. Woe number one and two. They've lost sight of where they're really going. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, which is a convert to Judaism. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Well, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Julia and I have been watching a lot of basketball over these last few years, watching our kids at school. We, neither of us, have any idea how to play the game or what it's all about, but we watch it anyway. And um, especially when the kids are little, you see a phenomena every now and again, which is at the beginning when they throw the ball up in the air and everybody's gathered around, the ball sometimes comes down, lands in the hands of a... Lands in the hands of a, of a willing recipient who catches the ball and takes off with great joy towards the basket. And if they're doing well, they get to the basket, they throw the ball up and it goes down into the basket and they turn around to receive the rapturous applause of everybody who's around, only to realize that everybody's been shouting, no, because they were heading in totally the wrong direction. And they scored a basket in their own basket. Have you ever seen that happen? I bet Matt's seen it happen. I've seen it happen a couple of times. They just get totally disoriented. That's what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees and scribes. He said, you've totally lost sight of where you're going. Jesus and the kingdom of God is going this way. And you're running in exactly the opposite direction. You're scoring points for the opposition. Instead of doing what God wants, you're actually doing what the devil wants you to do. You're going in totally the wrong direction. What did he mean by that? Well, let's unpack some of the other woes. Woe three and four. They've lost sight of what's really important. This is verses 16 to 24. Let me just read you the second one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Tithing means you take a tenth of everything you get and you give that tenth into the temple. 
and the priests and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus says some of these things with a little sprinkling of humor, actually. And it wasn't very funny for the scribes and the Pharisees, but you can imagine some of the people in the crowd listening and having to cover their faces because they're trying not to laugh out loud at what Jesus is saying. These Pharisees liked their wine. And one of the things that they liked to do with the wine to make sure that it was absolutely the way it should be was that it was properly, properly strained. And so they would use a variety or a number of different layers of material and they would absolutely diligently strain the wine through all of these materials into their jug that they were going to drink from to make sure there wasn't the tiniest little gnat, little fly, little something that is going to be impure in that wine when they come to drink it. And Jesus said, there you are, you're so diligently trying to get the gnat out of, of, the, of the material and all the while there's a camel swimming around in your wine underneath. And you just take the jug and you just throw the whole thing back, a whole camel, which was the largest unclean animal that was around at the time. You can imagine the people put their heads down. Oh my goodness, that's funny. But it wasn't funny to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, don't you get it? You go into your gardens, which is what they did, and you pick your mint. And you come inside and you diligently, fastidiously, one by one, one piece for me, two pieces for me, three pieces, four pieces, five pieces, six pieces, seven pieces, eight pieces, nine pieces, and one piece for God. One piece for me, two pieces for me, three pieces for me, four absolutely diligently. Meanwhile, there might be a lady living next door who's a widow who needs some help. There might be an orphan out in the street who's been left there, needs a home. There might be some foreigners that have come into town that need a place to stay. But they're so busy counting their mint and they're coming and that they don't even see them. They've lost sight of what's really important. I've done a fair amount of church history reading the last little while. I've found this uh, series that I really quite enjoy. And, and, but as I've been reading it, uh, the information is, is very helpful. But actually some of it is, is pretty, you want to weep over it. For centuries, the church in many different ways has spent loads of hours and time and, and, and energy and sometimes pain and suffering, and sometimes wars, and sometimes killing each other over small little issues of doctrine which seem so huge to them, but, but we've got to get it absolutely right. One, two, three, four. Meanwhile, there's a whole generation of people outside the door that don't know Jesus, that are lost, that are dying, that are going to hell without the truth, that maybe need a home, that maybe need a shelter, that maybe need someone to look after them. But that's a one piece of mint. Two pieces of mint, three pieces of mint. We've got to get this right. No, you've, you've lost the plot. You've lost what really matters. What really matters is that there are people outside here that don't know Jesus. That's what really matters. People who need care and kindness and love. That's what really matters. They've lost sight of where they're really going. They've lost sight of what's really important. What else have they lost sight of? Well, woe five and six tells us they've lost sight of how to really please God. Let me read you these verses from 25 to 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgent. You blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. They look spotless on the outside, but inside they're utterly selfish. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They look like my dishwasher at home. It looks great on the outside. Just don't open the door. They see themselves in the mirror and they think, I look great. It looks wonderful. But inside there's selfishness and there's uncleanness and there's rottenness. So it's like dead men's bones. There's just deadness in there instead of real life. You get the picture. They absolutely believe they're somewhere good, but actually they're in a very, very bad place. They're blinded by their religious outer coat. They should have known from the story of David. You know, he's the great king that they loved, the great king that sat on the, on the throne of Jerusalem and brought peace to Israel, the warrior king. They should have known from that story. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. What's in here? That's what matters. What's inside of here? That's what matters. Then Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter in his final woe. They've lost sight of what God is really doing. I'm not going to read all this to you. You can read it to yourself out of uh, the verses 29 to 36. But what was happening in Jerusalem at the time was that the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to stir up sort of nationalistic tendencies because they wanted to, to strengthen the Jews to push back against the Romans and eventually rebel against them. So one of the things they were doing was they were going to the tombs of the prophets and they were sprucing them up and making them look nice and they'd put flowers on them and they'd paint them and they would do things that, that would bring them back to people's attention. And what they were trying to say was, we love these prophets, we love what, they've, what they did and what they said and what they've done. And Jesus said, you, you've totally lost sight of what's going on. Your forefathers killed the prophets. And, and if they were around today, you would kill them too. I'm paraphrasing an American pastor and preacher and writer called R.T. Kendall who said, the only way to know if you've been part of what God was doing in a previous generation is if you're part of what God is doing in this generation. If we're opposing God in this generation and what he's doing, picking apart what he's doing and what's happening, we'd have done that previously. If we oppose and kill what God's doing now, we'd have killed the prophets. That's what he's saying to them. And here, a couple of chapters ago, as we read a couple of weeks ago, Jesus talked about the parable of the, of the owner of the vineyard who leased the vineyard out to tenants. And the tenants came along and, and they took over the vineyard and he went away and then he sent his servants. Do you remember that story? To take back what the owner owned. Give them some share of the crops. And they killed the servants. Finally, after sending two lots of servants, he said, I'm going to send my son. And they killed his son as well. And this is Jesus speaking. 
He's saying, don't you realize what's going on? You killed the prophets. You're dusting off their monuments. You're saying, yeah, this is all very, but actually you're going to do the same thing again. The son is here. The son has been sent. Jesus is right there and you're going to take him and you're going to kill him too. They're going to oppose God in every generation. With this catalogue of charges against what seemed to be an utterly self-righteous, self-deceived, arrogant group of people. There were some folks amongst the Pharisees, incidentally, that were good. You can read about some of them in the scriptures. They had good hearts. But for the majority of them, that was not so. Laying heavy burdens on people, bullying people through the law without lifting a finger to help them. You would have been forgiven for thinking that God would just want to get rid of them all. Stenches filled the house. Just need to clean the whole thing up, get it out, start again. But here is where we get to the wonder. Jesus finishes with an astonishing outflow of his heart, which includes strong judgment, and yet there is incredible mercy in it too. Let's read those final verses. This is from verses 37 to 39. Jesus starts like this. Remember, this is a a woe. This is a funeral dirge. He's crying out over his people and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. What would you do with a city like that? Destroy it, maybe. This is what Jesus said. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. If you've got a hen playing out in a yard, chickens around it or whatever, they're all having a great time and then all of a sudden the shadow of an eagle comes over the top of the yard. What's that hen going to do? Anybody? Gather the chicks. Get under the wings. I'll protect you. Jesus can see Titus coming through the doors of Jerusalem with his armies. He can see the flames. He can see the blood. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he says, I would have gathered you. I would have gathered you. The eagle is flying overhead. I would have gathered you in my arms. I would have protected you. That's how much I love you. But you were not willing. See, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Well, there you are. That's the judgment. God is leaving the house. In the very next couple of verses, that's exactly what happens. In the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus leaves the temple. Just judgment. The smell has filled the house. It's become unbearable. God needs to move out. House is left to you desolate. So that's the end, right? Because isn't that what they deserve? But no, it's not the end. And here's the wonder. You can never get to the end of the love of Jesus. And this is what he says to them in verse at the end. I would tell you in verse 39, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that he's going to return one more time, but he's not going to come back until something fundamentally has changed and some fundamentally changed in the heart of his people. And he's talking about the Jewish people here. 
And what needs to change? Well, a day or so ago, people have been shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's children. It's the poor. It's the broken. It's the folks who followed Jesus from Galilee. And he comes through the gates to those chants. But the religious leaders aren't saying it. The religious atmosphere in in Israel, they're not saying it. They're saying the opposite. They're going to start shouting crucify. And even those people who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, some of them are going to turn around and start shouting crucify him as well. Something needs to change in this people before Jesus comes back. Jesus is not coming back until they recognize him for who he really is. I don't know what percentage of Israel, but it will be a great turning back to the Lord. And I'm talking about the nation of Israel here. A great turning back to the Lord. When Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah and the rightful heir to the throne of David, then they will see him again. Only this time their response to him will be entirely different. Instead of Jesus breaking his heart over them, they will break their hearts over him. As prophesied in Zechariah 12 and verse 10. When it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And what will the result of all that brokenness be? Zechariah 13 verse 1 tells us, on that day... There shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Paul backs this understanding of what Jesus is saying up in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, 27, when he says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel and until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Here's the wonder. Jesus loves these people. And incidentally, there's not room for one smidgen of anti-Semitism in the house of God. There never was and there never should be. Jesus loves these people and we ought to love them too. He cries over them. He pleads with them. He's about to die for them. They have sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and they're going to fill up the full measure of their sins by killing the Son of God who was sent to save them on the back of killing all the prophets who were sent before. But even that is not enough for God to totally turn his back on them. He's going to send his spirit one more time. To the nation of Israel. The spirit of holiness who will open their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. And break their hearts for all that they did to him. And he will heal them and forgive them. And make them truly clean inside and out. And then they will shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it will not be long after that. That the skies will open and the trumpet will sound. And Jesus will ride through the heavens. And descend onto the earth. And call back to himself those who have called him Savior and Lord, both those who are born outside of the nation of Israel and the redeemed children of Israel. That is why this chapter is amazing. I hope you never read it the same way again. 
Because it's not primarily about how bad mankind is. And folks, we are rotten to the core outside of Jesus Christ. It is really about the infinitely wonderful, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that chases us down, fights till we're found, leaves the 99. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. Still he gives his life away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Today, let's ask ourselves, because remember Jesus said, don't be like them. Have I lost sight of where I'm really going? Have I lost sight of what's really important? Have I lost sight of how to really please God? Like, what's the inside that matters, not the outside? Have I lost sight of what God is really doing? Have I kind of taken a back seat? I've got off course, maybe even critical of what God's doing. If so... Can I encourage you with something from this scripture today? Jesus hasn't lost sight of you. So I want to encourage you this morning, if any of that applies to you, to turn back to his unfailing love. And maybe this morning you don't know Jesus at all. You've never given your life to Jesus and you don't know that you're going the wrong way, you're playing for the wrong team, and it's only going to end up in one place. We're doing a number of funerals this next week. It's appointed for men to die and then the judgment. Outside of Jesus Christ, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And we will have to give an account for what we have done. And the only thing that matters at that point in our lives is what we have done with Jesus. Because there is no other way to the Father but by him. He is the only way to God and what we have done with Jesus will determine our destiny either to be in heaven with him or else to be cast away forever from the presence of God to hell that's a horrible thing but Jesus doesn't want anyone to go there not willing that any should perish but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth Jesus loves you today. He loves every one of us. And if today you're listening and thinking, yeah, you know what, I'm running in the opposite direction and whatever, listen to me. Jesus loves you. He died for you on a cross to take away your sin and he wants to draw you back to himself. He cries over you. Oh, that you would return. And you can return this morning. We're just about to move right into communion here because we want to celebrate together. This incredible love of God. This is Jesus reaching out to you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now, right before we come and take the communion elements together. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. You can pray it after me out loud. I'm going to encourage every one of us to pray it with me as we pray. And the prayer is basically saying, Lord, I'm sorry for going my own way. I'm sorry for sinning against you. Will you forgive me? And asking Jesus to come into your life as your saviour and your Lord and the greatest treasure of your heart. And if you pray that prayer this morning, amazing change will happen. All those dead bones inside, all of that deadness, you'll have the life of the Holy Spirit come in and bring life, resurrection life. He raises dead people. That's what he does. That's why we're here, because he raises dead people. 
And he's the resurrection and the life and he will raise you this morning. So I'm going to pray a prayer. Maybe even just be one person. But I encourage all of us to pray along. You might be praying next to someone who's doing it for the first time. Maybe today you've run away from God. You, you knew God, but you've run away. And you're thinking, I've sinned and I've sinned and I've sinned and I've sinned. I've crucified Jesus again and again and again. Well, he was crucified once for you. And he still loves you. And you're here today because he wants you to come home. You'll not get judged. Nobody's here to put you down. This is the father's house. This is where the prodigals get embraced. Unconditionally. Amen? You pray that prayer too if that's your place this morning. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to be the saviour of the world. Jesus, thank you that you came. I'm sorry for all the wrong things that I've done. I'm sorry for the sin that separates me from you. But thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please forgive me and cleanse me and free me from the grip of sin. Today, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my heart. I give you my life. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord and the greatest treasure of my heart. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, you've become a child of God. And this is our family feast. It's very simple. The world doesn't understand it, but we understand it. Because this is why we're here. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. And he gave his body for us on a tree. And so we're going to celebrate communion together. And you, if you've just prayed that prayer, you can come and celebrate it with us as well. And at the end of the service, we've got some literature we'd love to give you. We'd love to pray for you as well about those things. And we'll do that at the end. But I'm going to invite Ken to come now and lead us in communion.